Tonight, a Canadian cold case breakthrough, an arrest in the brutal murders of two women. Long-awaited answers in a marathon investigation. Aaron and Susan are finally getting their day. The science that led to a suspect. We're able to use investigative genetic genealogy. The explosive rise of food bank use. Some of the recipients are telling me they're going days without eating. The spike in demand and the surging cost of living. It just becomes too much to bear. Plus, a sleeping giant reawakens in Hawaii. We've taken the threat of monolithic eruption seriously. The world's biggest active volcano erupts for the first time in nearly 40 years. CTV National News with Omar Sachedina. Good evening, everyone. A suspect is in custody tonight in connection with a cold case some believed would never be solved. A technological advance allowed Toronto police to make an arrest 39 years after the crimes. Two women were killed months apart inside their homes in 1983. Now police say they have linked 61-year-old Joseph George Sutherland to their deaths. CTV's John Venavelli Rao on the DNA breakthrough. As Toronto police officially announced the arrest, for one victim's brother, it was a moment filled with emotion. Coming four decades after his big sister was brutally murdered, when Sean McCowan was just 13. And this is a day that I and we have been waiting almost an entire lifetime for. Metro police are appealing for the public's help in solving the murder of 22-year-old Aaron Gilmore. Aaron Gilmore was an aspiring fashion designer who in 1983 was sexually assaulted and stabbed to death inside her apartment five days before Christmas, a murder that happened four months after Susan Tice, a mother of four and social worker, was also assaulted at home and killed. The two women didn't know each other, and for decades, Toronto police had no suspects. That is, until they turned to new DNA technology, leading them to arrest and charge a man who'd never been on their radar. If we hadn't utilized this technology, we never would have came to his name. 61-year-old Joseph George Sutherland was arrested last Thursday in Moosonee, an Ontario town just south of James Bay, charged with two counts of first-degree murder. Sutherland had lived in Toronto in the early 1980s. McCowan says the call he got from police was the best of his life. It was one of uh, disbelief. I, I was mixed between sort of joy and I also was breaking down in tears just finally that we'd gotten to this day. To crack the case, police turned to genetic genealogy. They had a sample of DNA taken in 1983 and sent it to a lab in the States. The results were compared to DNA profiles, voluntarily uploaded to ancestry websites and a family of interest was identified. From there, we're able to narrow it down to the possible suspect. Toronto police used the same technology in 2020 to solve the decades-old murder of nine-year-old Christine Jessup. And in the U.S., it led to the arrest of the Golden State Killer. As relieved as we are to announce this arrest, it will never bring back Aaron or Susan. The man, now charged, had moved around Ontario over the last 39 years, so police are now checking to see if he's potentially connected to other unsolved cases. Omar. We'll see what more they can uncover. John, thank you. Well, if you made a trip to the grocery store this weekend, you probably realized how much more it's costing for the basics. For some, that surge combined with higher food prices and just about everything else means they need more help to get by. A new report shows 587,000 people used Ontario food banks over a year, up 15% since 2019. 
and one out of every three visitors did so for the first time. Overall visits were up 42 percent, meaning those who use food banks are relying on them more. As CTV's Atlantic Bureau Chief Kreese Najkute reports, it's a troubling trend nationwide. The point of desperation to make ends meet is growing across the country. You can't go with missing rent, you can't go with missing a utility bill, bill, so often people will go without food. The increased cost of living, the increased cost of food, unaffordable housing, it just becomes too much to bear. Here in Nova Scotia, the number of people accessing the food bank is up 25% compared to last year. Feed Nova Scotia has also seen 1,800 new clients in the last six weeks. Many of them are employed. Having a job has never been, and certainly isn't now, the protection from food insecurity. The latest numbers show nearly 1.5 million visits to the food bank in one month, the highest usage on record, an increase of 15% over last year, despite unemployment rates being near record lows. The two cities of life uh, are costing way more now than just six months ago, and uh, we're still not out of the woods yet. In Ontario, there's been a 64% increase of new food bank clients. It's, it's sad, actually, if you're there to see other families, you know, in line and with their kids and, you know, and the kids are wanting and mom has to say no. Established in the 1980s to combat recession, food banks were never meant to be permanent. Those on the front line say food banks should not be the solution. Go to your MLA and say, what's the plan? Quite simply, what's the plan? Another issue for food banks is the need for culturally specific food for new Canadians. For now, experts predict food bank usage will only grow as food prices continue to go up. Omar. All right, Kreeson, thank you. Housing and mental health support are the urgent needs on a First Nation in Saskatchewan, where homes turned into crime scenes in a deadly massacre just three months ago. Today, the Prime Minister met with families of the victims, along with survivors, while pledging millions to help the community, shattered in the rampage. Here's CTV's Jill McEachon. A Prime Ministerial visit is a signal of hope in a First Nation, the centre of one of Canada's worst mass killings. Don Kelly lost so much that night. Having that feeling of comfort, having my brother and my mother around. Two of ten victims stabbed to death in a violent rampage believed to be fueled by drugs. Eighteen others were injured. The suspects, two brothers, Damien Sanderson was found dead on the First Nation and Miles Sanderson was the focus of an intense multi-province manhunt. He was finally arrested three days later, about 100 kilometres from the crime scene. He went into medical distress in police custody and died. You know, it was very awful day, September 4th, but... The way they died was the bad part of it, but the lives they lived was the good part that we remember and we uphold. The Prime Minister visited the grave sites. He met privately with the families of the victims and promised more accessibility for substance treatment and a new wellness centre in the community. More than $40 million in new funding over six years. Proper care and interventions can help avert crises. This is why access to culturally grounded mental health and addictions care are so important. But there are still issues surrounding housing. After many of the homes here became crime scenes, four families are still waiting to come back. 
And in this tragedy, paramedics and police have been criticized for the response time. The people of James Smith are demanding their own tribal police force. We wake up lonesome and scared and uh, like, do we have to worry about another incident like this happening? The federal government is working on new legislation that would make First Nations policing an essential service. Expect that in spring. But establishing new police services, that could take years. Omar. Jill McEshawn in Winnipeg tonight. Jill, thank you. Canada's first Indigenous Supreme Court justice made history today when her fellow judges welcomed her to the bench. Michelle Obansawin, a member of the Odenak First Nation, took her place on the land's highest court and said her path wasn't easy, but hoped others learned from her success. I hope that my journey to this court will inspire young women to pursue their dreams. Obansawin replaced Justice Michael Muldaver, who retired in September. Security in some of China's biggest cities was tightened even further today in response to the protest against its rigid COVID restrictions. Police are even searching people's phones, deleting photos of the demonstrations, and looking for social media and messaging apps used to get around government censorship. CTV's senior political correspondent Glenn McGregor on the rare displays of public dissent. A heavy police presence on the streets of Beijing to discourage demonstrations against strict zero COVID measures that brought thousands out in major cities across China. Now inspiring shows of support in the UK, in Hong Kong, and in Australia. Freedom, freedom for China! The uprising is drawing comparisons to the 1989 student revolt at Tiananmen Square. A test of China's resolve to continue lockdowns and forced testing as cases climb. And a direct challenge to its authoritarian leader. I find this extremely courageous on the part of people to uh, call for uh, Xi Jinping to, uh, to step down. At a small protest at the University of Ottawa, where China's ambassador to Canada spoke, exchange students worried about family back home. We know exactly how it's going to end. They're going to stage a, like, a fake violent incidents and they're going to pan it on protesters that, like what they've done to, China, to Hong Kong like three years ago. I have no like, uh, prediction about what's going to happen next, but I'm, like, uh, I'm supporting them like 100%. There is economic risk too. Shares in Apple dropped today on concerns about its supply chain. Clearly China as a major economic player and China still uh, struggling with uh, COVID, there's obviously there's an impact on the economy. China's potential for disruption was addressed in Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy unveiled this weekend, but no comment so far on the anti-lockdown protests. Will they indicate to Beijing that the peaceful protest should be allowed to go ahead and that any crackdown should be resisted? In an attempt to keep the protests under control, the Chinese government is censoring online discussion and even removing images of massless soccer fans at Qatar from China's World Cup feed. Omar. All right, Glenn, thank you. A protester made it on the field at the World Cup today. The spectator with the rainbow flag was chased down by security. The rainbow colors are a symbol of LGBTQ2S plus rights as same-sex relationships are outlawed in Qatar. The protester also wore a shirt with messages supporting Ukraine and women in Iran, which had a protest of its own against a tweet by the U.S. Soccer Federation showing its flag without the Islamic Republic emblem. The U.S. says its players had no advanced knowledge of the post, leading to a tense news conference. You're pronouncing our country's name wrong. Our country is named Iran, not Iran. 
My apologies on uh, the mispronunciation of your country. The two teams play tomorrow. The U.S. has to win to move on. There is a new and urgent fight in Pakistan tonight to contain the largest and deadliest militant group. The Pakistani Taliban, or TTP, has essentially declared war, shattering a fragile ceasefire with the government and leaving the country bracing for more deadly attacks. CTV's Genevieve Beauchemin is in Islamabad tonight. Genevieve. Omar, the Pakistani Taliban's orders declaring a jihad mark a dramatic escalation in the conflict. The government here in Islamabad struck the agreement in June, but it's been shaky since the very beginning. In the last week alone, the TTP has claimed at least 16 attacks against Pakistani security forces in the northwest of the country. The armed group is responsible for dozens more violent attacks and hundreds of killings since it emerged in 2007. Pakistan and Afghan Taliban philosophies align. And Islamabad and the TTP agreed to the truce after Afghanistan's Taliban rulers took a prominent role in peace talks. Both sides repeatedly accused one another of ignoring the truce. The TTP said it had repeatedly warned Islamabad not to sabotage negotiations or face widespread retaliation. The Minister of State for Foreign Affairs here in Pakistan is heading to Kabul tomorrow to hold a dialogue. Omar. Lots at stake. Genevieve Boshameh in Islamabad tonight. Genevieve, thank you. We have a heartwarming follow-up to a story we first brought you a few weeks ago about a young Palestinian refugee who stabbed herself in front of Canadian immigration officials because she said they just weren't listening, but someone else was. A source of kindness and compassion that came as a surprise. CTV's Adrian Gobriel explains. For far too long, Aziza Abu Serdana has struggled to smile. <laughs> I see a big smile on your face. Thank you. That is, until now. I can't imagine that even, like, oh. We recently spoke with the Palestinian refugee after the 22-year-old had stabbed herself in the stomach with a knife while in a meeting with Immigration Canada in what she calls a desperate plea to find housing. I put the knife inside my body because nobody cares. Seriously, nobody cares. It turns out somebody does. After being segregated and degraded while living in this hotel west of Toronto for more than seven months after arriving from Gaza, her cry for help was heard by a Canadian mother who saw and read Abu Serdana's story and offered her a place to live where she would feel safe. She yeah, just saw the news and, you know. Aziza's new surrogate family here in Ottawa asked to remain anonymous, though they did want to share one message, that this is the Canada that they know, one that breaks down walls and gives everyone an equal opportunity. If you was born in Gaza, you don't know what life is. She gave me a chance to life. She said you don't need to worry about anything. Nice. <laughs> Abu Sudan is quick to point out that she's Muslim, and the family who've welcomed her as one of their own is Jewish. I can't imagine that there's a Jewish family they will say welcome. This is the life here in Canada. Finding an apartment with her own bedroom and bathroom where she feels secure has been essential. Abu Sudan fled Gaza because back home her father and grandfather have threatened to find her and kill her. Refugee advocate Mona El Shayel helped facilitate the life-changing move. My hope is that she feels now that she is in a safe place, that she's got a family, she's got people to care about her, and has every opportunity to live her life as she should be. I, I don't know what is the love is. I don't know what is the life is. You feel reborn. Yeah. Adrian Gobriel, CTV News, Ottawa. Time for a short break, but when we come back... 
we don't want to try and second guess the volcano. Tracking a volatile eruption in Hawaii. Plus, the rescue mission after a small plane crashes into live power lines. Geologists around the globe are watching Hawaii's big island tonight. Mauna Loa, the world's largest volcano, has woken up after a nearly 40-year slumber, rocketing ash and lava into the sky. CTV's Joy Malbin on the fresh display of nature's rage. On the big island of Hawaii, the world's largest volcano began to rumble, darkening the skies red, fiery rivers of lava snaking down one side of the volcano. You can clearly see that that's lava coming down on the law. It is nuts. Spewing gas and ash into the air, officials telling people with breathing problems to stay inside. You know, we're way overdue. We were way overdue for a monolithic eruption. Um, and so... We had prepared. Dormant for 38 years, the Mauna Loa volcano is roaring back to life. These heat images show the moment it erupted, a long-feared event triggering an emergency response. The mayor of Hawaii County issuing a code red warning to some 200,000 residents, but said there are no evacuation orders or immediate threats to nearby communities. As a precaution, though, shelters have opened and some airlines aren't taking any chances. Southwest has suspended several flights to Hawaii Island. State transportation officials advising passengers due to volcanic activity to check with the airline first. We don't want to try and second guess the volcano. We have to let it actually show us what it's going to do. In 2018, a neighboring smaller volcano, Kilauea, spewed lava over several months, destroying more than 700 homes. Although the flows currently aren't threatening lives or property, Mauna Loa eruptions can be very dynamic. It may have been decades since Mauna Loa last erupted, those on Hawaii's Big Island being told be ready and have an evacuation plan just in case. Joy Malvin, CTV News, Washington. There was little time for a rescue plan after more than 100 people who were fishing were stranded on a large chunk of ice that broke free on a lake in Minnesota. I would say 60 feet of open water. A temporary bridge was quickly set up. Fortunately, everyone made it back to land unharmed. And a delicate rescue in Maryland after a small plane slammed into an electrical tower. The pilot and passengers spent over six hours dangling 10 stories up in the air last night. Both were taken to hospital with serious but non-life-threatening injuries. Power was knocked out to tens of thousands of people. No word on the cause. Still ahead, surprise star power. Who paid what for this hat and why? Coming up. A viral disease is getting a new name just four months after it was declared a global public health emergency. Monkeypox will now be referred to as Mpox by the World Health Organization. It's making the change after receiving complaints that the original name led to racist and stigmatizing language. Both will be used next year, so the old name can be phased out. And there's no phasing out of this next word. In fact, Merriam-Webster says the popularity of the term gaslighting has soared, which is why the dictionary is calling it the word of the year. It's defined as the act or practice of grossly misleading someone, especially for one's own advantage. And it says lookups have surged this year. It comes from the title of a 1938 play, 
later turned into a movie in which a man pushes his wife to question her sanity by secretly dimming the gas lights in their house and then telling her she's simply imagining the changes. Actor Hugh Jackman says he was speechless after a longtime friend donated a lot of cash to charity after his Broadway show. Fellow Aussie actor Nicole Kidman surprised the audience with a winning bid of $100,000 U.S. for an autographed hat Jackman auctioned off after his hit show The Music Man. The money goes to Broadway Cares, a nonprofit that raises money for AIDS-related causes. After the break, out of hospital and back on the stage. we got two shows tonight, regular and extra crispy. Comedian Jay Leno makes light of his fiery accident. One of the world's funniest men returned to the stage Sunday after a horrifying car accident in his own garage. Comedian Jay Leno suffered serious burns while repairing a vintage car. But as CTV's Richard Madden reports, the frightening incident is now a key part of the funny man's act. Hey, how are you? Comedian Jay Leno returned to the stage over the weekend. His severe accident is now a punchline. I never thought of myself as a roast comic. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Good night. The former late-night host was back doing stand-up at a California comedy club. His first set after suffering third-degree burns in a car fire just two weeks ago. Oh, we got two shows tonight, regular and extra crispy. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. Making light of his misfortune, Leno's injuries were serious. Reports say he was badly burned while fixing one of his vintage steam cars in his garage when a clogged fuel line ignited. He was hospitalized for 10 days, the scarring still visible on his face, hands, and arm. He definitely has serious injuries. There are potentials for scarring. There's a potential for some dysfunction in some of the areas that he's injured in. Welcome to another episode of Jay Leno's Garage. The well-known car enthusiast and host of Jay Leno's Garage recently featured his antique 1907 white steam car okay, a little too much. that may have been involved in his accident. One thing about a, a white is it has to be surgically clean. There could be nothing stopping the fuel from flow. Dropping in the high gear. Now he's back on the road to recovery, performing to a sold-out crowd and receiving a standing ovation. I feel good. Thanks, you guys. Did you feel the love in there? Yes, I felt the love, yes. The legendary comic proving that perhaps laughter is his best medicine. Richard Madden, CTV News, Washington. It can be healing and good to see that he is doing okay. And that is a snapshot of this Monday for all of us at CTV National News. Thank you for watching and see you tomorrow. News, Canada's number one newscast.